Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a look at the modern rock charts one month at a time. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and today we're going to be looking at April 1992. Joining me today is Rob Elba. Welcome. Hey, how you doing, Will? Good, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, of course. Rob, you are also a music podcast host. I am. Look at that. What a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't pretty much every guy over in a, of a certain age a podcast host these days, though, really? Yeah, it, it seems like a lot of them are, yeah. I was just going to say, it's a good thing you're a music podcast host, because I'm working on about three hours of sleep, so... Uh, at some point, I might just start babbling incoherently, and uh, you can feel free to take okay. over and finish the episode for me. <laughs> I'll try and help. I'll try and take up the slap as as best I can. Okay, fantastic. Your podcast is called That, that record, record Got Me, me high. high. Yeah, That Record Got Me High. Is that a They Might Be Giants reference by any uh, chance? Yeah, it, it is. That's kind of like how we got the name, because they have that song, The uh, Statue Got Me High, and, and uh, that's, that, that is what I had in mind when I, when I thought of the name of the podcast. Okay. And before you were a podcast host, you were in a band? Multiple bands. Yeah, I've been playing in bands since I was a teenager. One of those bands, The Holy Terrors, you were doing work right around this time, 1992? Is that right? Yes, yes. They, we existed mainly, I mean, when we were like, you know, actually playing a lot and doing stuff in the early 90s, like between 90 and 95 was our was our heyday. Uh, we were a good band. Yeah. I listened to some of your tracks. Do you want to give listeners a quick description? I don't know. What Well, what would you say? We were kind of like a post-punk band, I guess you could say. It sounds to me kind of like Pixies or Archers of Loaf, but maybe if they were really into Bad Religion. I don't know. Something like that? Is that, yeah. that kind of on target? Sure, sure. That is. Melodic, uh, sort of aggro, uh, post-punk rock. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that was us. Yeah. All right. I think we're going to listen to a Holy Terrors track a little later in the episode. But for right now, why don't we jump into the modern rock charts and take a look at some songs that charted in April 1992. We're going to kick things off with the first number one hit of the month, and it is by U2. I can't even keep track of how many times U2 has been on the charts at this point. Oh, I I can imagine. Yeah, right, right. They were unstoppable at this point. They were. The song we're going to hear is called One and I'm not even sure that I need to go over you two anymore. I think we've gone over who they are. <laughs> yeah, for so, for anyone that's, that's never heard them or heard of them. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm running out of new facts to say about them. Right. But I will say this, as of the last time I checked, they are the band that has put more songs on the modern rock charts than any other band. They have charted on the modern rock charts 42 times. Oh, wow. That's amazing. The only other band who's close is Pearl Jam, who's at 40, and both of those are active bands, so it's still possible that they might put more songs on the charts in the future. Right. Anyway, we're going to hear the song One by U2. One was U2's fourth single from the album Tongue Baby. It landed on the top of the modern rock charts for one week and also hit number 10 on the Hot 100. So, I don't know. Let's just jump in and listen to it. Sisters, 
You know what? You two always holds like a certain place in my heart. And I know there's a lot of people that I'm uh, that I'm friends with that are of a certain age that kind of got over you two because of uh, Bono and he, how outspoken he was. And, you know, and, and then, then putting that record on everyone's iTunes who didn't ask for it. But I can't hate on them. And, and they're not a band that I kept up with. I mean, I was a big fan when they first came out. And I saw them uh, early on, like a few times. I even saw them in South Florida. I went to see the Jay Giles band just because U2 was opening up for them. It oh, was nice. at the, yeah, West Palm Beach Auditorium and it was, uh, October had just come out and, uh, we went, yeah, just to see U2. But this, I have like a quick story about this song because as you had mentioned, I was in this band, the Holy Terrors, and this is South Florida in the, in the early nineties. And there was this producer there, Joe Galdo, that worked for Island Records. And he was a fan of our band and he was a fan of a couple of other South Florida bands. So he arranged this uh, showcase that the uh, three bands were going to play for Chris Blackwell. Chris Blackwell was going to fly in and see the three bands. And Joe Galdo invited us to the studio and we were talking about what songs we were going to play and all that. And then he said, Hey, you two have an album coming out. This is a great song in it called One. Do you want to hear it? And he played it for us there in the studio. So it was like really cool that we got to hear it before it even came out. And uh, of course, it, it's amazing. And it is an amazing song. Just a quick follow up on that whole, the showcase gig. Uh, the three bands played. Chris Blackwell was there. He like left immediately after. And then, like, we didn't hear anything for, like, a week or two. And then, finally, our bass player talked to Joe Galdo and said, hey, what happened? And Joe said, Chris didn't really like any of the bands, but he really didn't like Rob. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. So, it almost seems like I was – he didn't – he disliked me so bad. I wonder if it poisoned him for for the whole night or I don't know. So Yeah. Wow. uh, That was my brush with uh, Chris Blackwell. But, yeah, this uh, this is – I think it's a great song. And and it's got a cool story, too, because they were kind of thinking about breaking up almost. And I guess they – Edge came up with this riff and they played it. And then when they put this together uh, in the studio, they kind of felt like a band again. Like they were getting back to their roots and they felt like a band. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's right. They were recording some new material in Berlin, and it was not going very well for the band, and they were actually thinking about calling it quits, but this is the song that energized them and got them feeling good about playing music together again. Yeah, and and what do you think? You're you're a fan, right? You have to be a fan of you you YouTube, right? Uh, They're all over your show. I am a fan of you, too. (laughs) They're a band that I appreciate, and I recognize how good they are, and I like them, and I listen to them, but they're never going to be like my top tier favorite band of all time right okay yeah yeah Yeah. no really the kind of the same for me but i just one thing i just have such respect for them because they're four guys that were literally friends since they were kids they got together Mm -hmm. when they were kids and they became the biggest band in the world and they're still the same four guys and they're still together and and you get that's like amazing when you think about it because that is so rare and you know they are really, really talented. I mean, it's a talented group of guys. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Do yeah. You think? yeah. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> I don't know. There's there's just a lot there to like. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, before I talk about the song anymore, there is one thing I discovered about the album Octung Baby" that I wanted to talk about. When I was looking up where the title came from, a lot of sources credited it to a line from Mel Brooks' film the producers. Oh. But a lot of people or a lot of other sources online said that's not actually true, so I looked up the screenplay. Well, the producers, they have the show, they have the Springtime for Hitler is is the musical that they're making in the producers. Well, yeah, exactly. It seems it seems like it should be in that movie, but it's not. 
So I, I wanted to know where is this line from and why do people think it's from the producers? So I dug a little deeper and apparently it's from a 1983 single that came from the Mel Brooks film To Be or Not To Be starring Gene Wilder. Do you know this film? Oh, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I, I'm, I'm a big Mel Brooks fan and Gene Wilder fan, so but I, I don't even, I can't recall the movie, but I, the title sounds familiar. Yeah, so on the soundtrack album to this movie, there's a song called The Hitler Rap. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Octung Baby is apparently a line that comes from The Hitler Rap. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, you know what? Why don't, we, why don't we just play a clip from the song? All those mothers in the fatherland. I said, Octung Baby. I got me a plan. Said, what you got, Adolf? What you gonna do? I said, how about this one? Well, what? Yeah. Yeah. So back to the song one. Uh, one other thing that I think is interesting about the song is that it was released as a charity single to raise money for AIDS research. Oh, nice. Yeah. Which is a pretty cool thing. And it raises money for what's called the One Foundation. And I think it's dedicated to ending hunger, primarily in Africa. Okay. And when I looked at this organization, and I think this is pretty typical for you too, uh, I found people praising the organization, but I also found a lot of people really talking smack okay. and, uh, you know, giving you two a hard time for raising money for the hungry oh of course of course there's people yeah because that's the that's the the world we live in now and people hate no matter what it is yeah yeah, yeah. feeding hungry people in africa fuck them yeah well exactly they're like fuck him. Uh, sure they've raised almost a billion dollars to end hunger but they're using it to lobby governments to end hunger rather uh, than you know directly ra- feeding yeah. people on the ground oh jesus yeah so yeah no one's ever happened i just wanted to bring that up because you know what? I'm going to stand up for Bono and you two here. Does Bono like to hear himself talk? Yeah, probably. Right. But, exactly, uh, exactly. They're also doing a lot of really good work. At the end of the day, yeah, they could have just made this massive hit single and just kept all the money for themselves, but they yeah. didn't, you know? So, I mean, come on. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Another interesting thing about this song is that one has charted four times on the Hot 100, once, of course, with U2's version, but it also charted with a cover by Mary J. Blige. Mary J. Blige, which is really good, actually. It, it's, I mean, she sings the fuck out of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Adam Lambert did a cover that charted. Oh, no, that I didn't hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm curious. Yeah, right. <laughs> then the Glee cast managed to get on the Hot 100 with a cover of one. All right, that I have no... That I, that, that's where I draw the line. No, no. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> to me, that's like uh, the ultimate backhanded insult, if I can be allowed to use that term. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, on the, on the surface, it seems like a compliment, but uh, really, it's a stain on the song's legacy. That's yeah, how I feel. Yeah, yeah. But it's great. At the end of the day, it, it is a really great song. It's just a it's just a great song, and and uh, their uh, just recording of it is just like really great because you can hear it's organic. It sort of all comes together, sounds very organic, and uh, it's just it, it is great. It's great. Yep. And in fact, one did show up as the number one song of all time on a Q magazine list. Which, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's something. Yeah. It is. Here's one more thing to look for if you're scouring the internet. In 1993, some members of U2 and some members of R.E.M. teamed up to form a supergroup called Automatic Baby, and they performed the song One at Bill Clinton's inauguration. 
Wow. I, I have no memory of that at all, but that sounds kind of cool. <laughs> I would want to see that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that was U2 and 1, and we're definitely going to be hearing more from U2 in the future. Yes. Uh, it's unavoidable. Which takes us to our second number one of April 1992. This song is by The Cure. The song is called High, and it spent four weeks at number one. The Cure is led by Robert Smith, and at this point, he's the only constant member of the group. Simon Gallup was the bassist for most of The Cure's career, but he did miss out on a little bit of the band here and there. Right. The Cure were formed in 1978 in England, although the origins of the band go all the way back to 1973, when Robert Smith and his friends formed a band called The Obelisk, and then they later changed the name to The Menace. And then The Easy Cure before finally settling on just The Cure. And I guess they were a post-punk band, but their early stuff sounds significantly different than what came later. Oh, yeah. Yeah, at some point, I think when they were two albums in, Robert Smith filled in on guitar with Susie and the Banshees. I think that might have been in 1979. And he came out of it feeling, I think, a little more goth. Right, <laughs> right. Less punk, more goth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so he decided to take the band in that direction. And, you know, speaking of goth, director Tim Burton, he was a big fan of The Cure, and he actually asked Robert Smith to do the music for his film Edward Scissorhands, which Robert Smith didn't end up doing because he was busy, and so Danny Elfman ended up doing the music. But also, Edward Scissorhands' hairdo, his hairstyle was modeled on Robert Smith's hairdo. Ah, well, that makes sense. Of course. Like, I read that and I thought, <laughs> that's completely obvious, but somehow I didn't think of it before. Right, right, right. By 1992, The Cure are on their ninth studio album. This one's called Wish. And Robert Smith said this album was heavily influenced by a couple of songs that he was listening to over and over while he was recording the album. So if anyone wants to hear some of the inspiration for this album, one of them is the song Mesmerized by Chapter House, which... Oh, wow. Great band. Yeah, it's it's a pretty recent song. It just came out... I think it charted on the Modern Rock Charts in January of 1992. And then the other song is Human by The Human League which interestingly was written by R&B songwriting legends Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Oh, okay. So give those songs a listen when you get a chance and see if you can hear any of The Cure's Wish in there. All right, well, we're going to hear the lead single from Wish. It's called High. That's the cure of that time. I mean, they just had they had that sound down by then, you know. Yeah. So that uh, that's sort of like that throbbing bass, and it's very like open and dreamy sounding, and it's it's really good. But I I used to be a bigger Cure fan, but at this point, I stopped buying their records. I, I still appreciate them, and when I hear the songs, uh, I I still you know I think they're really good and I like them. But I guess I just I'd kind of moved on from them at this point. You mean by nineteen ninety two? 
or yes, okay. yeah, okay. right yeah. by that point, yeah, yeah. Got it. at that point already, yeah, because I I had some earlier uh, Cure records and I was a big fan, and I still was, like I said, I still was a fan, but I wasn't keeping up with them so much and like buying their uh, records, but I still like everything they do, and I like even the stuff that he did uh, much later on. I I still like it all. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is interesting about the Cure is that they do really really gloomy down in the dumps types of songs. And they do really poppy, sugary songs. And they do both of those kind of songs really well. Yes, right. That, that's true. That's a good point. They're not just they're not just the down, uh, dour uh, goth band. They also have these like really bright uh, poppy songs too. Yeah. And this is this is one of the poppier ones here. Yes. <laughs> that's great. Friday, I'm in love. I mean, how could you hear that song and, and, not, and not feel up? Especially on Friday. If you listen to that on a Friday. Oh, awesome. yeah. You know, I was going to say something about the lyrics here. They are just kind of silly yeah. and fun, and they don't make a lot of sense. Like, uh, when I see you kitten as a cat, I don't know what that means. It's, <laughs> But it's cute, and uh, I like it. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, he doesn't write, he's, he's not writing real uh, specific songs about specific things. He's more about uh, mood than just, you know, throwing out absurdist uh, poetry, I think. Which is, which is great for what he does, but that's what he does, Robert Smith. All right. Well, yeah, that was uh, that was fun. That was good. I read that Billy Corgan, one of his primary influences on the Smashing Pumpkins was The Cure, and that's maybe not super obvious. It's not. No, no, that's kind of surprising to hear that. Although I think, I mean, I'm not a fan of Billy Corgan, the person, but I'm definitely a fan of the musician Billy Corgan and, and a lot of the songs he wrote. And yeah, but Smashing Pumpkins, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm wondering what it is, what he took from The Cure that he... Uh, into his own music because I don't see that really. Yeah. Actually, now that I think about it, maybe uh, especially the earlier stuff, they had some of these like sort of lush, dreamy sounding uh, songs that maybe could be cure, cure-ish. So I'm, I'm thinking of the more like heavier metal influences on him. But yeah, I, I guess on, on uh, Gish and uh, Sammy's Dream, there are some more like dreamier sounding songs that you could see could have a cure influence. Yeah, yeah, I always thought of that stuff as being more influenced by my bloody Valentine and shoegaze type of stuff. Right, but right. I guess it's not too far of a jump from that kind of music to The Cure, really. That was a nice segue. If you're going to segue into the next song, too, that was a uh, brilliant segue. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I am. <laughs> Even on Three Hours Sleep, that was uh, well done. Yeah, you know, I guess I should say The Cure have not released an album since 2008, but they are still together and they're still an active touring band. Wow, really? Not since 2008. Wow, time flies, huh? Yep, yep. Uh, I guess they're due. I hope The Cure has been using their quarantine time wisely and working on some new material. Who knows? Maybe they're just not, maybe he's just on Twitter, like, (laughs) (laughs) doom scrolling. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, I guess speaking of shoegaze, we're going to jump a little bit lower on the charts. We're going to hear a song that reached number 20, and this is a band called Ride. Ride was formed in Oxford, England in 1988. They were inspired by the Smiths, the Stone Roses, House of Love, My Bloody Valentine, and Jesus and Mary Chain. They have two lead singers who share vocal duties, Andy Bell and Mark Gardner. And I guess I should mention that Andy Bell is not the same Andy Bell from Erasure. This is a different Andy Bell. Right, right, right. Although that'd be a <laughs> that'd be a very different ride, I suppose. But right? um, I'd still listen to it. Yeah. So initially, this was considered a shoegaze band, and their first album, Nowhere, is considered a shoegaze classic. 
By the time we get to 1992, their second album, Going Blank Again, it's still kind of shoegazy, but they've begun incorporating some more prominent vocal harmonies. And they started drawing comparisons to bands like Teenage Fan Club. So be on the listen out for that. Maybe you'll hear a little more pop sensibility. We're going to hear the song Leave Them All Behind. This was Ride's biggest hit. It reached number nine in the UK and number 20 on the modern rock charts. And presumably the version that charted was the short version, which is about four and a half minutes long. But there's also an eight minute, 17 second version, which I have on good authority is the superior version. Anyway, here we go. Rides, leave them all behind. I'm a fan. I, I was a fan of Ride. I mean, I just, that sound, uh, that Creation Records, I just love that swirling guitar sound and very, like, dense and lush sounding. But there's, you know, the melody's, like, hidden down in it. And uh, I was a fan of that. I like that, and I, I like the band. Yeah, I, I like the earlier stuff, but I like this, too, because I'm a, I'm a big Teenage Fan Club fan, too. So I could hear they were sort of going in a little more melodic you know areas and and uh that's great for me but they still had that dense heaviness that i like about them you know yeah absolutely i mean if i'm gonna be honest shoegaze is not my favorite genre because there's a part of me deep inside that thinks a lot of these bands are often just disguising their weaknesses under layers of guitar I mean, it's true. That's something that happened, and, and that can happen. And there are bad shoegaze bands that just have pedals. You know, the guitar player will have like 20 pedals, and it'll just get this droning sound, and there's no real meat there. It's just that. Yeah, so uh, I agree. But that's why I'm not a fan of that, but that's why I'm a fan of bands like this that have the melody and the songs in there. It's buried in there, but it's baked in there, and that makes the difference for me. Right, so right. I don't like, yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. I'm not just a blanket fan of all shoegaze. But I like the sound, especially if I'm in a certain mood to just hear that. I mean, uh, it's just like an assault on your ears, but it has that like pretty melody buried down in there. Yeah. I like that. But yes, I, I agree with everything you said about the song. I think it's cool. I think the melodies are there. They're just buried a little bit. Right. But uh, they're there. They're there. Yep. Anyway, Leave Them All Behind was Ride's second modern rock chart appearance. They're going to have one more. And then they're going to disappear from the modern rock charts. Their third album moves into kind of a classic rock direction. Fans didn't really like it, and then they disbanded in 1996. But they did get back together in 2014, and they've released two albums since reforming. Really? Wow. I had no idea about that at all. Yeah. So if you want to see Ride, (laughs) you've still got a chance. Don't miss out. All right. We got one more band. We're going to go down almost to the very bottom of the charts to listen to a band called Miracle Legion. Was this a band you were familiar with? I had not heard of this band before. I was, but earlier, like uh, college, because they they had that college hit, uh, Backyard, the song Backyard, which I think was on their first record. And it was kind of like a college hit. And yeah, and I was a fan of them, but I did not know this song at all until I heard it. And this is awesome. And I'm kind of sorry I didn't like keep up with the band or anything because i really like this song but yeah they i just remember them from way back in the day just being a sort of like a college rock band yeah 
So Miracle Legion were formed in New Haven, Connecticut in 1983. They are led by singer-songwriter Mark Mulcahy and guitarist Ray Neal. Initially, they called themselves the American Legion, but that name was taken by the American Legion. (laughs) And so it was suggested that they use the name The Miracles, and that name was also taken by Smokey Robinson's band. So they smushed those two names together, and Miracle Legion it was. Ah. Early on, the band drew frequent comparisons to R.E.M. Yes, right, right. I think both because of Mark Mulcahy's voice and their kind of jangly guitar sound. And they found early success on college radio with their first EP, The Backyard. That's the thing that's interesting to me. I've read everywhere that The Backyard was a big college radio hit, but I've never been able to find any college radio charts on the internet. Ah, that's too bad. That's a shame because that's where, yeah, I was still uh, living up in Boston when this came out. Like I was, you know, in, in the 80s. And uh, yeah, there was just, that's all I listened to. So many, all these little colleges all had these great college stations and I heard so much great, you know, so much good music. But uh, yeah, it, it, that's a shame that it's all kind of uh, in the ether. I mean, maybe uh, dig harder. Maybe you'll find some. Yeah, you know, I'm going to keep looking. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this is kind of crazy. Following the success of the film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the production company Morgan Creek decided that they wanted to get into the record business. So Miracle Legion was one of the first bands that they signed on their new record label. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound promising. (laughs) Nope, nope. So in 1992, Miracle Legion released their fourth studio album. It was called Drenched. It was recorded with John Porter, who produced some stuff for the Smiths and some other cool albums. And we're going to hear the first single off of the album called Snacks and Candy. He's a little bit older than the rest of the kids He's got a gun and a key to handy Gonna meet him down at Snacks and Candy Cause we're going down To Snacks and Candy going down We're going down To Snacks and Candy going down Take some practice, catch down on the playground fence Somebody coming but I sure they don't know had you heard this song before this? Have you ever heard it? Because I never heard no, this song. No, I was not familiar with the song before I started researching for the show. I was not. And when I saw it, I, I will admit, at first I was dreading. I thought it was that horrible song, Sex and Candy. <laughs> Sex and that, that I'm thinking, oh, no. God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to make things really clear, there is no connection between the song Sex and Candy and this song, no! Snacks and Candy. <laughs> I thought maybe that Sex and Candy might have been inspired by this one, like they misheard the lyrics or something. Right, but, right, right, right. Um, no, there is no yeah. connection Thank between God the two songs. there's not. Yeah, but this, yeah, I... I really I, I thought this song was, was cool right away and then when I read about it it made it seem even cooler for me because it has a really cool uh, story to the song right the first time I heard it I thought yeah this is kind of a cool fairly upbeat song I like that right right and then uh, <laughs> you start paying attention to the lyrics right. and you're like uh, what's exactly. going on what was that yeah, I, I don't know how much research you did. Do you want to talk about what the song is about lyrically? Yeah, I mean, it's basically about a murder of this Yusuf Hawkins in Bensonhurst, New York in 1989. A bunch of white kids would hang out at this place, uh, Snacks and Candy. They called it Snacks and Candy Place. And they beat this kid, uh, Yusuf Hawkins, poor kid who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time to death and it's written from the point of view of like one of the kids one of the white kids like and and uh like you said just the fact that it sounds so upbeat but it's so dark 
subject wise is like really brilliant. Yeah, and it's kind of disconcerting when you finally realize what it's all about. You're like, oh, ooh. Yes. And it's cool. Did you even read about how it came to be like that? Because they uh, they said when he first brought the song, the singer Mark, he was singing, but it's a rehearsal, and they couldn't hear what he was singing. So all they really heard was the snacks and candy. So they thought, it, oh, it's an upbeat pop song. So they made it sound real boppy, not real... <laughs> <laughs> what he was singing but he ended up said that's what made it great though the fact that they because maybe if they knew they would have tried to make it sound darker and it wouldn't have been the same you yeah know? absolutely and um i think it really works i don't know i'm into it yeah i i agree and and it makes me kind of want to like hear the whole record and like i said do a dive back into it that first ep was the only thing i think i ever got by them this is one of those bands who never really sold a lot of albums, and casual music listeners probably don't know who they are. But no, I was shocked that you even that they were on a chart at all. I was shocked when I saw that. Yeah, but I was going to say they do seem to be well respected and well regarded within the music community because at some point Mark's wife died kind of unexpectedly, and a bunch of other musicians kind of rallied around to put together a tribute album to raise money for Mark so that he could continue to be a musician and raise his kids. And it's all Miracle Legion and Mark Mulcahy songs and Michael Stipe's on there, Tom York's on there, Frank Black, The National, Dinosaur Jr., Mercury Rev. This is like a star-packed... That's like a who's who, yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah. It's called Chow My Shining Star, the songs of Mark Mulcahy, and it was released in 2009. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, so I guess all I guess uh, they were just one of these bands that the people that people who who knew the musicians and uh, remembered them and liked them, but they never got past that. Which there there are bands like that, you know, that are just like musician bands, you know, musicians. Yeah, and I should mention Tom York apparently was really really inspired by Mark Mulcahy as a vocalist. Really? Yeah. It's one of the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He heard Mark Mulcahy or one. One song in particular, and Tom York said he and his brother listened to this thing over and over and over again, and it really inspired Tom to be a vocalist and to sing in a certain way. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, it's hard for me to hear. I don't listen to Mark Mulcahy and hear Tom York really at all, but... I mean, he's very emotive. He's kind of emotive, and you hear the emotion. He sings with emotion, so maybe that's what Tom uh, York picked up from that because he's sure. also a very emotive singer, so maybe he picked up on that. Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. So, following Drenched, Miracle Legion wrote a bunch of songs, and they were totally ready to meet up with Daniel Lanois, who was going to produce their next album. Oh, wow. That's Big Shot, Daniel Lanois, yeah, who yeah. Uh, was producing for U2 at this point. And right before they were ready to go, like a week before they were ready to record, their record label told them it wasn't going to happen. And Miracle Legion said, well, I guess you're going to drop us then. And Morgan Creek said, nope, we're not going to drop you. So the band was stuck in limbo, unable to record, unable to move on, and unable to do much of anything. I knew that Morgan Creek was going to be bad. (laughs) Just just the sound of it, it it sounds like a... uh, water like they make a a bottle of water or something you know well you know it's rarely a good idea when a company that's involved in one thing branches out just for the sake of money become a record label now yeah (laughs) i know yeah there might be some money over there let's go do that thing right exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah anyway while waiting around with nothing to do miracle legion was approached by nickelodeon and asked to do some music for a new kid show oh that's right Uh, the pete and pete (laughs) 
<laughs> yep, yep, that's right. The The Adventures of Pete and Pete. And guitarist Ray Neal decided not to do it, but the rest of the band was in. Right, but they called it, what did they call it, uh, Polaris? Yep, that's right. That's right. They changed I their forgot. name because Ray Neal wasn't involved. And they recorded not only the theme song, but a bunch of incidental music for the show. It's great. You know what? Your kids are too young, but my kids uh, would the, the perfect age. Like, I would watch Pete and Pete because that was a great show. Iggy Pop was on it. And, uh, yeah, it would have these guests. And it was definitely a show that was for, like, adults could watch it, too. And some stuff would go over kids' heads. But my kids love Pete and Pete. And I love Pete and Pete. And I love that. Uh, and I didn't find out till later that that the theme song and that that, that was the, the Miracle Legion guys. That's awesome. Yeah, and you know, I'm glad you said your kids liked it because this is a show that keeps popping up over and over again while I do research for the show, and it's got so many cool guest musicians. Yeah, and Kate um, Pearson. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I've been wanting to watch it, but I, I need a better excuse. Oh, it's great! So, no, you watch it. it. It's awesome. It's great. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, eventually Miracle Legion were released from their contract and were able to put out an album on their own label. But by that time, the band had pretty much lost momentum and they disbanded shortly thereafter. Yeah. But the band did reunite briefly in 2016. Oh, really? Around the same time as uh, as that ride did, too? <laughs> That's right. And they're not actively doing anything, as far as I can tell. But I did read an interview with the band recently, and the impression I got was that they would be ready and willing to record some new material if the money was available for it. Uh, okay. All right. So I'm just going to throw this out there. If there are any wealthy listeners out there who want to hear some new Miracle Legion material... What about Tom York? Why doesn't Tom York start a label and put it on? He loves them so much. We know Tom's listening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, So Tom... (laughs) Hit up Miracle Legion yeah. and uh, let's get us some new uh, some new songs. Step yeah. up, yeah, step up to the plate. Exactly. All right. Well, that was our four songs on the modern rock charts. Why don't we listen to a Holy Terrors track? Rob, what songs should we listen to? Cigarettello, great song. As to hear what the Holy Terrors were like, I mean that that was us in a nutshell. And the single is good. We re-recorded it for uh, the album we put out. Lolitaville, but the that version's not as good. The single version of uh, Cigarettello is really the best one. And um, you could hear Sam Fogarino now of Interpol, but you could hear him doing those uh, that train drum beat uh, that he was so great, and he's a great drummer. And, uh, yeah, Cigarettello. Okay. Was the single released in 1992? I think it was. I think oh. it was. Isn't that? Yeah, Look well. at that. <laughs> perfect. It was perfect. Good timing. Yeah, it is good timing. Is there anything you want to talk about with that song? I thought it was a cool song. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, Cigarettello, it's actually, it's kind of a cool story. I, I used to write, uh, like to write songs about things I, I would just read. And I was a big uh, Betty Page fan. And uh, uh, there was uh, these uh, photographers, they were they had a uh, photo club. And they used to take pictures. It was basically dirty, you know, dirty-minded guys that wanted to take pictures of girls in their underwear. Yeah. And uh, this one guy was named 
Little John, and uh, Little John, he had a thing. He used to ha- he used to like to have women uh, tie him up. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that was his thing. So he uh, he was in a motel room with a prostitute. He had her tie him up. She tied him in a chair, and he had a cigarette in his mouth. And she, they were, they had been drinking too. So she passed out. So he was tied in the chair, and the cigarette fell out of his mouth into his lap, and he caught on fire. And they were both ended up killed. The whole room ended up catching on fire, and they were both killed. And it was a very big scandalous thing. Uh, it happened just because it was so crazy. Yeah. So that's what yeah. the song Cigarettello is about. It's about that. That thing happened, and and the whole the whole idea of the song is uh, if you listen to it, uh, it's it's from his point of view, and he's thinking even though he knows he's dying, he's burning up. It's he's also thinking that it's really cool because he's into you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, it's kind of like a the duality thing there. So sure, that's so what it's about yeah, dark but uh, you know but human. Yeah, <laughs> dark but human. Yeah, and, and a little yeah, dark humor. That's the, that's my thing. Yeah, that's my wheelhouse. Nice. Uh, okay, very cool. You know, I saw that the Holy Terrors had a Bandcamp page, and it looks like all proceeds go to a good cause. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The guitar, Holy Terrors guitar player Dan Hosker was sadly uh, hit by a car in 2012, and he was killed. So his sister made a scholarship, a music scholarship, called the Dan Hosker Music Continuum. And uh, yeah, if you go to the uh, the Holy Terrors Bandcamp, anything you buy, any downloads, uh, goes to the scholarship. And it's been going since 2012. And every year we give it to uh, some worthy students at Bishop Fenwick uh, High School in Danvers, Mass., which was Dan's uh, the school he went to. And uh, and it's great. And and just a real quick side note: a couple of years ago, Chris uh, texted me and said, "Hey, one of the girls that won the music scholarship, her dad used to play in a punk band in England called uh, Gang of Four. Uh, have you ever heard of them?" <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, and it was great. I ended up, uh, it was Hugo Burnham's daughter, Tess Burnham. And I, I found him on Facebook and I just messaged him, yeah. you know, told nice. him that, uh, yeah. oh, you know, about the scholarship about Dan, that he was a big Gang of Four fan. And he didn't answer about a week. I figured, ah, that's it. He's going to ignore me. And then he sent me, he sent me this really beautiful thing just saying how he, you know, just couldn't believe how life works and that it meant, it means so much to him and it was so special. And he's a great guy. And he ended up, he's a he was a guest on That Record Got Me High podcast and he's a great guy and he's a friend now. He's cranky, a little, a little cranky, <laughs> but uh, he's, he's a really good guy. And well, uh, yeah, you know. so that was great. Yeah, that is great. Yeah, it is. And I wouldn't expect anything less than cranky from a gang of right? four members. Yeah, exactly. No, he's, he's great, though. You goes great. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really cool story. Well, gosh, I guess that's about it. That's our songs. Rob, is there anything that you'd like to plug before we go? Uh, the uh, the our, My podcast, That Record Got Me High, been going since 2018. We have a new uh, record every week. What we do is we have a guest on every week, and they pick a record that got them high, and then we talk about it. And you should actually, since I was on your podcast, uh, you should come on That Record Got Me High one, uh, one day and do a record. Oh, that'd be great. Would you be up for that? Yeah, okay. definitely. Yeah. Try and get more than more than three hours sleep, though. Try and get like, <laughs> at least six hours sleep. Uh, yeah, I'll, um, I'll do my best. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you, it's available on all the uh, all the podcast platforms. That record got me high. All right, everyone listening, go check out that record got me high podcast. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail dot com. Rob, thanks so much for joining me today. It was a lot of fun. No, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and, and we'll definitely get you on the schedule. You should come on uh, that record got me high. Yeah, that sounds great. 
Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you next time in May of 1992. Have a good one. Bye.